Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. So this morning, Tom decided to instruct me. And he said to me, this is the pulpit. This is where you stand. You have to wear this because the boss will get mad if you don't. So I guess it's only appropriate since I've been out for nearly two months. It's only appropriate to take a moment and thank Micah and thank Steve and thank Tom and Elder Alton Pickett last week. Did you enjoy him? Yes. I hope you appreciate that I was able to call him and I said to him, uh, we're friends, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, we're good friends, right? Yeah. I said, and I've been a good friend to you. He knew something was coming. And I said, and I've gone out of my way a few times for you, correct? And he said, yes. And then I hit him with the fact that I needed help and that I needed him to come stand here on Sunday. And he had to rearrange some things and have one of the ministers at his church where he pastors stand in for him over there so that he could come and stand here. And that's the sort of thing that a friend would do. So I appreciate him doing that. And I certainly appreciate Micah and Steve and Tom for keeping the ship afloat, the upside of the last couple of months is that I now know that GCA will exist and can exist after I'm gone. And for 20 years, I have been saying this isn't the gym show, even though every once in a while Jeff would argue with me and say, yeah, but it kind of is. But I'm glad to see that GCA can stand on its own feet and that you know collectively what it is that you believe and that various men are able to stand here and preach the same message and talk about the grace of Christ. And that's good to know because if I've learned anything here recently, I've learned my own fragility, that at some point God is going to take me out whether he lays me down permanently or whether he takes me home. I'm an old guy, and I'm not going to be able to stand here in perpetuity. And so I'm glad to know that GCA will continue. So hi, how are you? Good to see you all. I should introduce myself. My name is Jim McClarty. I am a recovering Arminian. By God's grace, my Arminian tendencies have been in remission for 30 years now. I know, pretty impressive. But I can't tell you how happy I am to see your smiling faces. 
is true, it is a fact, that I have been away from the pulpit for quite a long time. I have been struggling. I appreciate all the people who have sent me cards and condolences and emails. I appreciate everybody that has reached out to me, but let's be honest. It is true that I had my struggles. It's true that I just had a really rough two months. If you don't know anything about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, go home and look it up. It's a difficult thing to get rid of, even harder to live with. But that was just my struggle. Everybody in this room has their struggles. Everybody in this room, as part of being human, especially as part of being a Christian human, everybody is going to go through the tribulations of this lifetime. If you haven't gone through struggles yet, you're either not human or it just hasn't happened yet because it's part of the package. And amazingly, providentially, ironically, as we've been working our way through Colossians chapter 1, on our way through the book of Colossians, the last time that I was standing here, we emphasized the very, very high Christology that Paul lays out for us. And right on the heels of declaring that Christ is absolutely sovereign, that he is the maker of all things, the controller and sustainer of all things, right on the back of that, Paul is going to say, and I thank God for my suffering. And so he talks about sovereignty. He talks about a God who is in complete control and follows it right up with, and I struggle. I suffer. I suffer because of Christ. I suffer on behalf of the church. And I thank God for my struggles and my suffering. And so Paul does not see a conflict between the idea of an absolutely sovereign God and the hardships, the struggles, the difficulties of this life. The two do go hand in hand. It's not a strange thing. It's not a peculiar thing. Through many tribulations, we must struggle to get into the kingdom of God. He knew that it was going to be hard. He knew there were going to be difficulties afoot. He knew that we were going to, since we are just dust, that we are going to encounter all kinds of difficulties, germs, viruses. And that's one kind of trouble in the world. But also, if you claim Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're also going to have to deal with the fact that there is a whole wide world out there who hates Christ and therefore hates you. He himself said, they're going to hate you, but they hated me first. So the hatred that you're going to encounter from the world is a direct result of the fact that they hated him, and because they hate him, they're going to hate you because you're like a big neon sign walking around announcing that Christ is real and that God is real and that eternity is real and that God is a judge and that they are going to stand guilty before that God 
And so human beings, to avoid that reality, will try to shut you down and shut the Bible down and shut that whole Christian thing down so that they don't have to think about it so that they can go back to their sinful, depraved lives without having to give any real thought or credence to the fact that they are sinners standing before a righteous, holy God. So Paul sees no conflict whatsoever between sovereignty and suffering. Through the years, we have talked about that fact. Because I didn't always know that. I didn't always understand that. I didn't always get that. And as a consequence, growing up the Lutheran boy that I did, growing up with the theology of just do better in order to get into heaven, with that theology that I knew did nothing but actually condemned me because I couldn't do any better. But with that theology of God accepting you on the basis of your works, there was no room for, yeah, but what about pain and suffering? What about difficulties in life? And when I came to understand that the pain and suffering in this life was under the hands of an absolutely sovereign God, that's when I began to understand that even the difficulties, the pain, the suffering of this life has purpose. And that was the point that I was missing for most of my life. I did not understand that suffering has purpose. And so I thought suffering was just arbitrary or just cruelty on God's part. But then when I understood that an absolutely sovereign God is even in charge of the difficulties that we go through, and those difficulties cause us to look to him, because I'll tell you this, I never learned anything really important when I was comfortable. But the minute pain came, difficulty, sickness, drop me to my knees, take out everything. My money can't help me because medicine can't help me. Nothing I do can help me. My own will can't help me. My desire to be well can't help me. When nothing can help me, who am I going to? God. I'm running to God. Amen. I'm getting on my knees in front of that God. I'm crying out to that God and I am admitting to him, I need you more than I need Wow, that got real. <laughs> More than I need anything else in life, I need you. And he knows that. The whole history of Israel in the Old Testament is them running to God and crying for help, and then he helps them. He delivers them. He redeems them. He plants them in their land. He takes care of their enemies for them. And then a generation or two passes, and they forget about all the benefits of God, and they go back to becoming fat and happy, and then they don't care about God, and they don't chase after God, they don't worship God, they go after their foreign gods, they forget about the law of Moses, they live life the way they want to according to their own rules, so then God brings their enemies back on them, or brings a plague on them, and brings sickness on them, so that they will come running back to him again, crying out for deliverance from him. That's the whole Old Testament. And so that is God knowing that that's what we're like as human beings. 
He knows that we as human beings are going to get fat and happy. We're going to become self-satisfied. We're going to think that we're good enough, that we can control ourselves, that we protect our health, that we're in charge of our money, that we're the ones that feed ourselves and take care of ourselves. And he is going to, if he loves you, he is going to take that notion away from you so that you recognize your day-to-day, minute-by-minute, absolute dependence on him. And if he can't do it the easy way, he's going to do it the hard way because he loves you that much. He loves you enough to teach you these eternal things and to drive you to faith in him because he is the sovereign who is in charge, who has guaranteed you your future with him. And therefore, he is willing to drop you like a two-inch pot. There, David, that was a golf reference for you. He is willing to drop you to your knees if that's what it takes in order to get your attention and draw you back to himself. Because he's sovereign. So sovereignty and suffering are compatible. It is not an aberration. It is not a strange thing that's happening to you. This has been the history of mankind, the history of Israel, the history of the church. Remember that the history of the church is watered with the blood of the saints. Saints who loved God, who believed in God, and who suffered terribly and died because of their testimony of Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is about to talk about, that he is willing to suffer for Christ's sake because that's what's good for the church, he says. He says, I'm willing to take on all the suffering, all the slings and arrows, all the hatred of men who hate Christ. I am willing to take that on if that will somehow deliver you from all having to individually go through it. I'm willing to be the target. I'm willing to be the focus because that's what is good for you. The sacrifice that Paul is about to describe is very similar to the sacrifice that Christ took on, where he took the very wrath of God so that we are not appointed to wrath. Paul is going to say, I took the suffering that human beings who hate Christ dole out on the church, and I'm perfectly willing to take that in your place because I love you that much right on the heels of God is sovereign. It's amazing theology. It's astounding. And you know, I was prepared to say all that to you two months ago. And before I got to say it, God made me suffer for a while. Sometimes I think it would be nice if God would just dump some knowledge in my head and then just let me talk about it. But he wants to make sure that I really know it and believe it. And I am happy to be able to stand here this morning and tell you God is still sovereign, still in charge, still worth all our praise and worship. And the difficulties of this life don't change that one iota. They are part and parcel of how he is getting us to the eternity that he has promised us. And that's what the Bible says. And that's what life will teach you if you pay attention. Can I get a witness? Lee. So in order that we all understand the context, and because it's been weeks and weeks 
since we've been here in Colossians 1, I'm going to start reading right at Colossians 1.1 in order to catch us up to the new stuff and in order to remind us of what we have learned so far. Micah pointed out to me on Friday that someday somebody is going to be listening to this series on our website and they're not going to know that there was this couple month gap between the last time we were talking Colossians and this time. Um, but the gap exists, so we're going to read the whole chapter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you. In you also, since the day that you heard of it, and you understand the grace of God in truth. Just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day that I heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to our Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now his very high Christology. For he, Christ, delivered us from the domain of darkness. So where did he find us? Darkness. He found us in the domain of darkness. He didn't find us fine and doing good. He didn't find us morally neutral and doing well. He found us in the domain of darkness, here in this very dark, sinful world. He redeemed us from the prince of the power of the air walking after the course of this world, walking after Satan, just like the children of disobedience. We were no different than all the rest, and he delivered us. Amen. That's about as clear as it gets. We didn't deliver us. We didn't go to God. We didn't seek God. You know that Paul's theology in Romans is that there is no one who ever stirred himself up to seek God. 
and there's no one who does good no not one as a consequence since there's absolutely nobody who was either seeking God or even could seek God it was necessary that he seek us and that's the very theology that Paul lays out here that he knowing our desperate estate delivered us from the darkness that is naturally our estate he didn't say that we were capable he didn't say that we were spiritually hampered but still able to go look for him he said you were dead in your trespasses and sins so God had to deliver you and thank God the grace of God is and he did deliver you and he delivered you from the domain of darkness and then not only delivered you but transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son who's the actor God and God alone where are you in that sentence you're the acted upon you're the one who received the grace of God but you're not the one who accomplished any of that he Christ Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness he God delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom the son we have present tense we have redemption he paid the ransom price to redeem us off the slave market of sin so that we belong to him and we are not our own he has bought us with a very high price and in him we have redemption and then he defines what that redemption looks like he forgave us our sins he forgave us our sin have you ever in your stupid little life heard anything better then he delivered us from our sins I don't know about you and I don't know if you're anything like me and I pray to God that you're not but if you're anything like me and King David we share this in common David wrote my sin is always before me I know my sinfulness I know my wretchedness I know my depravity I wake up nights thinking about places I've been and things that I've done and I hope God doesn't know it because I know if you knew it you'd be embarrassed for me and yet the promise is that we have redemption the forgiveness of all that dark ugly hateful sin that permeates our life that my friends is the gospel Amen. and I'm happy to get up out of my sick bed and tell you that <laughs> I'm happy to once again get to say to you Jesus Christ is all and in all and he perfectly accomplished your utter redemption by dying on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins therefore you are utterly forgiven by the sovereign holy judge of the universe Amen. how good is that that doesn't get better than that I don't care what you accumulate in this life I don't care what you get in this life I don't care how fancy your car is or how big your house is I don't care how wonderfully behaved your children are are you listening Mia 
I don't care what kind of life you're living. There's nothing in this lifetime that compares to what I just said to you, to what the gospel preaches to you. The good news of Jesus Christ is we have complete redemption and forgiveness of our sins. Amen. It all comes down to that. But then Paul adds, he is the icon. He is the very image, the exact likeness of the invisible God. Jesus' apostles came to him one day and they said, show us the Father. He said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was declaring himself to be the very image of God, the very perfect representation of God, the icon, the Greek word that is moved in the English language. He is the very icon of God. And he is the primary one, the firstborn of all creation. Doesn't matter what you can name in all creation. Doesn't matter what you can point at. Doesn't matter what you can think of or conceive in all creation. He is preeminent over it. That's Paul's very high Christology. Because after all, he is the one who made everything. Look at verse 16. For by him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. That's why he can be the icon of the invisible God. No man has ever seen God, but men have seen Jesus Christ. That's why he is the perfect representation of God walking around on planet earth in shoe leather here on this dusty ball and then died for his creation because it belonged to him. And he can do whatever he wants with it because he made it. Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says that when he made man, he said, let us make man in our image, plural, plural God, the Trinity speaking. In other words, Christ was the logos. Christ was the speaking agency for the Godhead that spoke everything into existence. When you read, let there be light, that was Christ speaking. Therefore, everything was made by him. For by him, all things were created. The things that are in the heavens, that means every star, every planet, every, everything you see up there, every black hole, every, I, I don't know, I'm not an astronomer. But everything you get to see in the entirety of the creation. He made it. He designed it. It's for him. It's for his glory. The things that are in the heavens, the things that are on the earth, visible things, invisible things, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, whether good or whether evil, it was all made by him. Satan himself created being. Satan himself does only what he was designed to do in the first place. How do I know that? Because in the book of Revelation, we're told that when God's done with him, he's going to mop up the floor with him and put him in the lake of fire yes. that was reserved for the devil and his angels. So then, if Satan was in the garden and tempted the woman, 
and the woman fell as a result, why didn't God throw him in the lake of fire right then? Because it serves God's purpose. That there is a tempter in the world. That there is Satan, the accuser, in the world. That's all part of God's design. That's all part of God's plan. Everything that is happening is happening under the auspices of an absolutely sovereign God. And Paul says so right here. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created, not only by him, but also for him. So whatever exists, exists because he wanted it to exist. And it exists for him and for his glory and for his purposes because he's the designer, he's the sovereign, he's the decider, he's the one who gets to do it any way he wants to do it. When you look at the world, when you look at your life, when you look at what's going on on this insane planet at this moment, when you look at it and you think, how can this be? Why is this? How can this be the way things are? I can answer that question. The world doesn't seem to be able to answer that question. I can answer that question. Am I talking really fast? Look, I haven't talked for a couple of months. I got a lot of stuff to get out. I can make sense of this crazy world. Do you know why things exist the way they are? Because they exist for him. And this is the way he designed it. He created it. This is the way he wants it. Because if this wasn't the way he wants it, it wouldn't be this way. It'd be a different way. Because that would be the way he wants it. Instead, this is the world that he has designed. That he is in charge of. And this craziness is following the exact pattern that the Bible describes. For 20 years, I've been standing here behind this pulpit that Tom was so very kind to explain to me so that I knew how to stand here and how to wear the microphone. This world is operating the exact way that God means for it to go because for 20 years, I've been standing here saying to you, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. Where did I get that? Oh, you all laughed at me? I would say that and you would laugh. Oh, funny Jim. Cheer up, it's going to get worse. No, the Bible says it's going to get worse. But it also says that Christ is coming for his church. And so that's the cheer up part. Cheer up, you're not left alone. Cheer up, Christ is coming to get his bride. But it's going to get worse. Gloriously worse. Gloriously dark. And then he's going to crack the sky and come get his church. So this is proof yet again that everything is occurring exactly the way he means for it to occur. He's in charge of the world that he made because he made it for himself. Everything was created by him and for him. And he is before all things. Not only chronologically, because he spoke everything into existence. So therefore we could say, yes, he predates everything. He is before everything. But it also means that he is preeminent. That's why Paul keeps using the language of he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the preeminent one of all creation. He is before all of creation. There is nothing in creation that is not utterly dependent on him. Therefore, he is before all things. He is before all things, and in him 
all things consist or hold together. The reason the world keeps working, the reason that meteors have not come crashing into planet Earth and destroyed everybody on it is because he's in charge of all that. He sustains it. He keeps it going. Why is the Earth the perfect environment for human beings to flourish on? Because he designed it that way. He made it that way. That was his plan. And not only is it for him, but the fact that it exists moment to moment, minute by minute, second by second, the fact that the cells keep moving, the atoms keep spinning, the fact that quarks exist is because he designed it that way and is in charge of keeping it going. There's nothing that continues in his creation that he is not in charge of empowering and designing and then putting it into its exact place where it belongs to accomplish the very thing that he designed it for. All things consist. All things hold together by him. Can you see why Paul would say he's the preeminent one? Because without him, nothing exists. Nothing. Everything that exists is dependent on the fact that he exists. That's why God could say to Moses, yeah, I'll tell you who I am. I am because I am. It's the only explanation God gives of himself. He is the I am God. Because without him, nothing am. Everything that am, ams because he am. Oh, never mind. He said, I am. And everything else that exists, exists because he exists. Without him first existing, nothing else would exist. Therefore, he in fact is the firstborn, the preeminent one, the primary one of all creation. And everything is made by him, everything is made for him, and in him all things consist or hold together. And so, of course, Paul could then say, and he is the head of the body, the church. Yes, of course. The church exists because he exists. The church exists the way that it exists because of him. The purpose for the church, the design for the church the very fact that the church would be part of his design is for his own glory. So what do we do when we come together as his church? Is that time for us to get together and gossip about the latest Facebook posts? Is that the time for us to get together and compare our cars? Is that the time we get together and comment on each other's fancy clothing? Is that the time to get together and just make stuff up? No, the church is all about Jesus Christ. It was designed by Jesus Christ. It exists because of Jesus Christ. It exists for his glory to the degree that we are so unified with him, so connected with him that we are called his very body. He is the head of the body, but we are his body. We exist for his glory. We exist for his praise and worship. We exist because the one who made everything decided that this would exist. Therefore, he is the very head over the body of the church. 
and he is the very beginning. He is the firstborn, the primary born from all the dead. So, for what reason? So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Of course he would have first place in the church. But he has first place in everything. That means there's nothing you can think of, nothing you can accomplish in this lifetime, nothing you can participate in, nothing you can point at, nothing you can think of or conceive that he is not first over, that he is not primary over. He is Lord over your job. He is in charge over your family. He is the absolute sovereign over everything you do in your life. Far too often, I'm afraid. Now, that sentence should have been, far too often, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, far too often, I am afraid, people think that Sunday mornings at church is the time that they set aside for the worship of God. I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to worship God, give him an hour on Sunday morning, and then the rest of my life is mine. Not according to this. According to this, he has preeminence over absolutely everything. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he never ceases to keep everything working, to keep everything consisting the way that he designed it. 24 hours a day, he is absolute Lord and Master over your life. Even when you're asleep, even when you're in the dark, even when you're not thinking about him, he's right there and he's in charge. He is the master of everything or he's the master of nothing. Because everything exists so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. And it was God's good pleasure, says verse 19, for all the fullness to dwell in him. It's God's plan. It's God's design. God the Father decided that the entire fullness of everything would redound to the glory of his Son. His Son makes everything, sustains everything, has first place in everything, is preeminent in everything, and that was God's design. That was God's intention. Now, if that is God's intention, if that is God's plan that Jesus Christ have first place in everything, what's your plan? Does your plan comport with God's plan? Because God's plan is Christ has preeminence in everything. And if there's any corner of your life, if there's any part of your life, if there's any dark recess of your brain where he's not, where you think you're keeping him from being the sovereign Lord over that little portion of your life, trust me when I say he's going to take it back. Mm -hmm. And he'll take it back the hard way if he has to. Because he's sovereign. And he's in charge. And he loves you so much that he is not going to allow you your rebellion against him. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He chastens. See, we all know that. We all know that verse. We all know that concept. It's just hard for us to apply it and recognize that because God loves us, 
He chastens us. He corrects us. And sometimes he does that the hard way. But he will do it if you belong to him so that, as a result, Christ gets absolute preeminence in absolutely everything in life, in creation, in heaven, in eternity. He is the preeminent one. Therefore, get on your measly little face, put your forehead in the dust in front of him, and admit that he is absolute, complete ruler and Lord of your life, and quit fighting against it. Quit protecting those parts of you that you think are so precious. My little corner, my little pet sin, my little thing that I... Give up on yourself. Take sides against yourself. and Take sides with God. And recognize what he's in the enterprise of doing. He's in the enterprise of giving Christ absolute glory in everything. Get on his side and give Christ the glory in everything. That's right. Give Christ the glory in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of everything to dwell in him. Now, here's the best part of it. I said all that to say this. Once you know that it is God's plan that Christ be preeminent in everything, first place in everything, part of the everything that Christ is in charge of is you and your salvation, and your eternity. And that was also God's plan. Because if he left it up to you, guaranteed you're going to mess it up. Guaranteed. I don't even have to know you that well. And I know for a fact, if you're a human, you're sinful. And you're going to mess it up if it's left up to you. So the good news is, God didn't leave it up to you. He didn't give you the opportunity to mess it up. Look at verse 20. This is part of the Father's good pleasure. And boy, I'm happy that this brings him pleasure. Part of the Father's good pleasure is that everything, all the fullness of creation is going to dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself. Everything that gets reconciled to God. And don't you want to be reconciled to God? I mean, Paul says that the ministry of Christianity is the ministry of reconciliation. Because we're out there pleading with people to be reconciled with their creator. Be reconciled with the judge of the universe. The gospel is the message of reconciliation. And then Paul goes on to say, not that God needed to be reconciled. He did nothing wrong. He's not the one who needs to be reconciled to big almighty you. You're the one who needs to be reconciled to God. Because he's holy and righteous and perfect and eternal, and you're not. not. And so as a consequence, you need to be reconciled to God. And God determined that the way he was going to reconcile you to him was through Jesus Christ. And so he sent his son to the planet. And so his son died for you. And so his son took the wrath of God for you. And reconciled you to God through his own shed blood on the cross. He accomplished all that on your behalf. Here we'll let Paul say it. 
through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, irene, the stopping of the againstness between you and God. He's righteous and holy. We've all agreed you're not. That means there is a natural animosity between you and God. There's a natural againstness between you and God. Because he's righteous, holy, and eternal, and you're you. And so how did he accomplish reconciliation between himself and you? He made peace, the stopping of that againstness. He made peace through the blood of the cross of Christ, thereby reconciling you eternally to himself. Now, we've read a big chunk of scripture here this morning. So I have to ask the question one more time. What did you do in all that? What did Paul say? All you brought to the party was your sinful, depraved, little ugly self. And by the way, ugly there was referring to your inner depravity. I know you got up this morning and did your hair and cleaned yourself up and looked at yourself in the mirror and thought, I'm ready to go present myself to the world. And then the preacher got up and called you ugly. So I, so I should explain that. All you brought to the party was your sinful, depraved self. There was nothing you could do. You had no capability to reconcile yourself to God. And therefore, God, through Jesus Christ, did absolutely everything necessary to satisfy his own righteousness and thereby secure you for all of eternity by himself. Do you understand that? No, you don't, because you're still sitting here staring at me. This is the best thing you've ever heard in your life. This is the most wonderful thing you've ever heard in your life. God by himself reconciled you to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. It's a done deal. Amen. It's finished. It's accomplished. How good is that news? That ought to raise the level of what you think the gospel is. The gospel is good news, not just good, 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 good news. Good and gooder news. Through him, he reconciles all things to himself through Christ, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, anything, anywhere, on a spiritual or physical level, Anything that is reconciled to God is reconciled through Christ. Israel, reconciled to God through Christ. The church, reconciled to God through Christ. Those in heaven that are reconciled to God are reconciled through Christ. Paul talks about fallen angels and elect angels. Why were there some elect angels? Through Christ. Christ is the maker of everything and the reconciler of everything. Can you see why I just keep pounding away at 
Worship him, praise him. He's the preeminent one. You got nothing and he's everything. And once you get that in your head, you'll have no trouble worshiping him. You will happily lay your life down in front of him. And this God-hating world that comes at you from all angles and tells you how stupid you are and how you need a crutch and how Christianity isn't for intellectuals and all the stuff they're going to throw at you. It's going to bounce right off you like the fiery darts of Satan bounce off you because you have the full armor of God. Because you know who you are you know where you've been, you know where you're going, and you know who did it. I can't get past this verse. Through him, he reconciled all things to himself, having made peace between you and himself through the blood of the cross. Through Christ, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you, finally we're getting to you, finally you show up somewhere in this equation. How were you? You were formerly alienated from the righteous, holy God of life, the source of all life. You personally alienated from God. And you were hostile in mind. Not only were you separated from God, you hated him. That was your natural state. And you were hostile in mind. And how is he going to prove that you hate God? Because you might think, no, no, I was just kind of neutral. I didn't hate him. I just didn't care. I didn't have an opinion one way or the other. I didn't love him. I didn't hate him. I was just kind of, eh. Except that your deeds... Because you are a sinner by nature, your deeds were sinful and therefore law-breaking. Therefore, you were breaking the very law of the holy God, and that is hatred to God. So I don't care who you are. Even if you think you were neutral from God's perspective, you were not only alienated, separated from him, but you hated him as demonstrated by your activity in this lifetime. Here, I'll let Paul say it. You were alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And yet, verse 22, boy, that's a great place to put yet. After that description of you, alienated, hostile in your mind, engaged in your evil deeds, and yet, I think that word needs to be yelled that way. And yet, despite the fact that you were just so very you, so very sinful, so very depraved that the Bible describes it as separate from God and God hating and doing your evil deeds and walking after the course of the world and walking after the prince of the power of the air and you were children of wrath even as the others. And yet, he has now reconciled you. Think about who he is. Think about who you are. And he reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Why? 
in order to present you before God holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. I know me. I'm nothing if not reproachable. There's plenty to reproach me about. I wake up some nights and think about where I've been and what I've done. And I know one thing about me, not holy. You might say a lot of things about me. You could throw a lot of adjectives at me. But one thing no one has ever said about me, ever, even in the most glowing of terms, no one has ever said, you know, Jim is so holy. That just never came up. He is going to present us before God, the holy God, the righteous God. He is going to present us as holy and blameless. Kellen, you got anything you can be blamed about? I mean, like yesterday. Today. Today. This morning. Yeah, Micah, you got anything? Plenty of blame. There's lots of blame to go around. I think we all collectively as a group could blame Steve. I think. <laughs> Especially if your wife were here. Well, that won't make it to the internet because you'll hear about that later. <laughs> Stand before a righteous, holy God. Think about again who God is. He has encased himself in a light that no man approaches. That's how separate, how high and lifted up, how holy he is. And he has arranged it in such a way that you are going to stand before him and he is not going to judge you. He is not going to blame you. You are going to stand there as holy and beyond reproach because of you? No, because of Christ. That's the kind of preeminence Christ gets. That's the design and plan of God that Christ would get that kind of preeminence. And because it's the design and the plan of God that he have that preeminence, he's going to get it. Because right. that's the plan of a sovereign God. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and evil, as demonstrated by your evil deeds, alienated, hateful, evil, compare that with holy, blameless, beyond reproach. How do you get from here to there? Christ. Christ is the center of it all, the cause of it all, the purpose for it all. He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. And that takes us to verse 22, which as I recall is exactly where I finished up the last time I was standing here. That's where we'll start next week. God willing, and I live. Great introduction. That was all introduction. <laughs> we'll get to the rest of it next week. Because then Paul is going to say things like, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He has just described the absolute sovereignty of Christ. And right on the heels of that, he's going to rejoice in his suffering for your sake. The suffering in my flesh that I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church. 
So sovereignty and suffering are very compatible. They're all part of God's divine plan. But if you walk away with anything this morning, walk away knowing, number one, that Christ is preeminent in everything. Therefore, you have to reckon him as primary in everything. There is no aspect of your life, no aspect of your thinking or theology or education or sickness or family or philosophy. There's no part of your life that he is not to have absolute preeminence in. And through him, here's number two, through him, God has accomplished everything necessary to secure your eternal salvation. And that's why he deserves all the glory and the praise and the honor forever and ever. Yes. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.